This happens like a lot. While they're sitting there eating breakfast, they see the neighbor's you know, laundry outside on the clothesline. And uh, he wouldn't say anything. And then about a month goes by. And then she says the same thing. And she says, you know what? I- I'm going to go over there and go say something to them. Maybe, maybe I can help them out. Um, and he says, well, why don't we wait on that? And so the next morning, one last time, she looks out the window and she goes, wow, their clothes are really clean. What happened? And so then he pipes up and he says, well, I woke up an hour early this morning and I cleaned all the windows. <laughs> right? So the idea being, what we might be looking through to see somebody else's stuff, right? Our stuff might be dirty as we're looking through it, right? So I thought it was a pretty funny story. Okay, Matthew 15, uh, verse 29. Let's take a look here. It says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. People were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away, or they may collapse on the way. So his disciples said, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they, in turn, to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up the seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. So, this story um, sounds kind of similar to something we read not that long ago in the previous chapter, Matthew 14. Remember, he was on a hill and feeding some people and 5,000 people there. Um, So we're going to take a look at, you know, is this the same story? Maybe just a different version? Um, Is it actually different altogether? Maybe there's a contradiction uh, in the Bible. Um, But before we look at that, uh, we need to uh, kind of refer back to what we were talking about last week. And last week we had Jesus for the first time coming in contact with a Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman which is a big deal. One, she's a woman. Didn't really associate with women, especially rabbis, not really associating with women directly that much. And that was a big deal. And uh, the other big deal was that she was a Gentile. She was not Jewish. And the other big deal about that entire situation was that Jesus was amazed by her faith. Most of the time, he's trying to draw it out of other people and ask them questions and put them into situations and say... You know, what could I do? What do you want to do? What, do we, what should we do here? And in this uh, circumstance, she's persistent. She continues to sort of prod and not let Jesus get away until she gets that blessing from him. And he's just amazed by it. He actually is amazed by her faith. And it only happens two times in the Bible we talked about last week. And they're both Gentiles, both not Jewish. Pretty interesting. So we pick up this morning in verse 29. It says, Jesus left there 
and went along the sea of Galilee. And then he went up on a mountainside uh, and sat down. So he leaves that place where he was just interacting, where he was with uh, that woman there. And there's really nothing else recorded from the area where he just was with that woman. It was just uh, that one miracle where he healed that woman's daughter of that demon. And so now, he goes up on this mountainside by the sea and he just wants to sit down. Just wants to take a break. And whenever Jesus wants to sit down and take a break, some people are coming over. And it says, Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they laid them at his feet. Then he healed them. And so while he was there trying to get some break time, they actually, they say, hey, Jesus is here. And they bring all their friends. They bring everybody. Bring him at his feet. And he's not too tired to help them or heal them. And he does. And what happens, they go away worshiping and praising. And so they kind of have like their own little church service on the mountaintop right there. No teaching involved. No music involved. They just bring him to Jesus' feet and he just touches them. And then, Jesus is in a similar situation to last time where these people have been around him for a while. They need some food. Jesus says, hey, listen, you know, what should we do to the disciples? Sort of prodding them. Sort of being like, hey, you know, like, what should we do with this situation? What can we do? It's been three days. They've been hanging out with him for three days and haven't eaten. It says, and then the disciples uh, answered him, you know, I don't even know where we're going to get enough bread in this remote place to feed such, the, feed such a crowd. And Jesus asked a familiar question, how many loaves do you have? What do you have? And they say seven. And a few small fish. And he tells them all to sit down. He gives thanks. He feeds all of them till they're satisfied. And then they have basketfuls of leftovers. So, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at three questions from the passage. Because here's kind of what I'm curious about. When you hear about Jesus and he's feeding thousands of people, and he's doing these miracles, my sort of thinking and analytical part of my brain is saying, geez, where is this coming from? Why is he doing this? What, like, started it? What was the catalyst to get him going with feeding these thousands of people because it doesn't happen once in the Bible it happens twice and these actually are two different stories and we'll talk about that more later why did he decide to do it twice what was really the purpose behind that so we're going to take a look at really Jesus's character and his motivation behind wanting to feed these thousands of people who really didn't have anything you know to bring to the table except they're lame, they're broken, they're crippled, and that's all that they really had. So we're going to ask three questions that I think that are pretty good that relate to this passage that give us a little bit more insight into who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and why he does it. So here's the first question. First question is, are the disciples that dumb? Are the disciples really that dumb? What am I talking about? Am I just trying to insult the disciples? No, I'm not trying to do that. So he said the stories of the feeding of the 5,000, which was Matthew 14, and this story seemed very similar. And many would say that they're not different stories, but this is actually just a different version of the feeding of 5,000. A lot of people would say that. 
And the reason why they would say that is because how could the disciples react the way that they did? How could they, Jesus pose the same question with a similar group of people and they say, I don't know, what could we do? I mean, they were involved in a massive miracle last time with the feeding of the 5,000, where they didn't even have anything and it was a kid who had five loaves of two fish. He fed them all to overflowing. You don't forget that. It wasn't even that long ago. And actually, the, the time span is about a few months. You don't forget something like that. That is amazing. So are they really that dumb? Did they really just forget? What's going on? I think it's a good question, a worthwhile question to ask. And I think maybe before we answer it fully, maybe we should do a pretty good job as far as proving that these stories are definitely different. So, uh, up on the, the board here, we can see some, simil- some uh, similarities and differences between the two instances that we're talking about. So the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew 14, right? that was primarily Jews, Jewish people. It's in Galilee. It's five loaves, two fish. There was 12 baskets that were left over after he fed everybody. That crowd was with him only one day. It says that they were on a, a nice green grass or a mountainside last time. So kind of spring time of year. And what happened at the feeding of the 5,000 is that after that whole situation, there is a very dramatic circumstance that took place. After that whole thing, everybody rushed Jesus and they said, you're it, you're the Messiah, you're the one, we've got to make you king. And so they all rushed him. And they said, listen, now is the time. You have to be our king. We're going to make you king over us right now. And Jesus actually had to leave because he knew that was not his time to do that yet. In our story, this is primary Gentiles. He left the Gentile woman and really goes to a dominant, uh, dominantly Gentile area. The Decapolis. The Sea of Galilee, right on the shore right there. That's, that's where he's at. He totally left sort of Jewish, holy area. And now he's going to the sort of funky, strange, unclean, Gentile area. And this story mentions seven loaves and a few fish. Seven and a few. I don't know how many a few is. I guess it depends who you ask. I always thought a few was three. I don't know. And this one... It says seven baskets were left over. And one interesting side note on that is that the word uh, in Greek um, for baskets is actually a different word than what's in the feeding of the 5,000 because the Gentile baskets uh, were actually like bigger. So you could throw more in there, which is pretty interesting. In this story, the crowd was with them three days and they didn't eat. I don't know when's the last time you hung out with somebody you know and didn't eat for three days and that's why that question was in you know, get the juices flowing. It was the last time, like, you didn't eat for how many days? This was uh, during the summer. And they certainly, at the end of this passage, did not try and make him king. So these are two totally different stories. So believe it or not, Jesus did the same deal, almost exactly the same, two times. Why would he do that? What's going on? And I don't think the disciples are really that dumb. I don't think they're that slow. I do not think so. 
I had this kid in class on Friday. Talk about slow, right? So in class, it's sometimes it's just like, man, what is going on in their brains? And so we're talking about um, exponents. That's that little number that's in the right hand. So you have like a big number and you have a little number up there. That's an exponent. And so we were talking about different properties of those exponents. We're saying, you know, when you're multiplying two numbers and they have the same big number, which are bases, you want to add those little numbers, the exponents. So we made like a song out of it. You know, when multiplying, add the exponents. When multiplying, add the exponents. When mul- you know, and so if I do stuff, you know, it makes them laugh and giggle, but then they don't forget that. So I don't care if I look like an idiot, you know, they'll remember it. Calling this particular student, you know, he's usually doesn't have a right answer and he gets it this time because there's a goofy song attached to it. Maybe 10 minutes later, this same concept comes up and we're working on a problem. And I go over to the kid and say, hey, what's the one thing we learned today that had a song attached to it? And it's like we never, ever talked about it. Uh, what, Mr. Murphy? What? Like, I don't see the disciples, you know, really like that. Happened again on Friday. We spent one hour talking about one concept. This time, when you were dividing the bases, you got to subtract the... You guys are learning math today. When you divide the bases, you got to subtract the exponents. That was it. One concept for an hour. That was it. And at the end of that hour, I talked to a particular student. I said, what is the one thing we did today? Just tell me. Just one thing. Even part of the one thing. He couldn't give me anything. I said, you know, I am the worst teacher ever. You make me feel horrible. <laughs> so then they start laughing. They're like, no, Mr. Murphy, it's not you, it's me. I don't think the disciples were really that slow. I mean, we're not talking exponents here. We're talking an amazing, life-changing miracle. In fact, it was a life-changing miracle that occurred, and then they had to run away because they're trying to take their master and make him king. I don't think they forgot about that. I don't think they're that slow. I think maybe something to think about. Why they responded the way they did. Because you're just like, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed them? And they didn't have a good answer. Nobody said, hey, let's do what we did last time. Why not? Why wouldn't they say that? Well, maybe they believed that Jesus could not, or more importantly, would not do it again. Maybe they believed that Jesus could not, or more importantly, would not do it again. Why would they think that? Follow me here. Maybe they thought that they were so lucky and God was so gracious to them last time that they got into trouble and they're in this situation that God wouldn't do it again. That they were so lucky and he expounded so much grace in them. It was so amazing. They're like, I can't see God doing that thing again. I don't think that the disciples forgot about the last time, but I think they needed to better understand maybe God's grace. Because I think that's something we could definitely fall into. Maybe, for most of us, we can say, man, God came through huge in that area. That was big. I don't even know where he came from or how that happened. Maybe sometime later down the road, we might say, geez, you know, I got lucky with God last time. He was really gracious and patient with me then. I'm not going to press my luck and try again on that one. 
See, when we make a response like that, that means we're not really totally understanding how gracious our good God really is. And I think it's very easy to think that way. God did this miracle in our hometown in Israel with his chosen people, with the chosen race, with the right surroundings. Here in the Decapolis, with the Gentiles who are unclean, who probably have perverted worshiping practices, and it's not all that holy, ah, Jesus isn't going to do that for them. I could definitely maybe see some of that thinking pattern happening like that. And I think that's something that maybe we can relate to a little bit. See, grace is one of the trademarks for the Christian faith. It's amazing. It covers so much for us. And that's like the one thing we want to preach and just shout from the rooftops. Because when we profess our faith in Christ, we know that it was grace. Because when we truly and totally understand sin, and how, listen, we're all guilty all the time, hardly any of us, none of us can say, oh man, you know what? I'm not doing any of that sin today. I'm doing really great. I mean, really? The way God defines sin is just even intentions and inclinations of the heart that are impure already has us guilty. Well, in that case, everybody's guilty almost all the time. And so it says that we just accept what Jesus did for ourselves and we live that out in faith. I mean, that's amazing the type of grace that that is, how much it covers. It says that grace is unmerited, undeserving, unearned favor. I think that's a very, very difficult concept for most of us. Because most of us grow up in a world where, hey, listen, you know, you work hard, you get a paycheck. You know, you work hard in school, you get good grades. Um, In some families, if you uh, produce, you know, work hard, win awards, you get loved. If you don't, then you don't get loved. Much of what we experience and see around us is, hey, listen, as long as you do this, I'll give you love, I'll show you approval. As soon as you don't, I'm holding it back. And then even some people, you know, manipulate that situation, which is horrible. It's horrible. So God's grace doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us. What? You would still choose maybe to love me and to bless me, and maybe do this radical miracle again just because you want to shower me with grace. That's something that's very difficult to understand. Because we really believe that we think that, you know, we've earned everything we have when in reality God has given us so much. Case in point, it says, uh, Jesus says, you know, God, always uh, give us uh, today our daily bread, right? Give us today our daily bread. I don't know how many people actually pray that prayer each day in a faithful way. God, you know, today, you know, give me my daily bread, you know, give me what I need. Even if we don't pray that, right? Let's say we don't pray that. Is God not going to give us our daily bread and what we need for that day? I mean, does it really work like that? You know, no, it doesn't work like that. He would still give us, you know, what we need to get through that day, whether it would be money, whether it would be food, um, whatever the needs might be, he would still do it because he loves us. He wants to uh, pour out his blessings. He wants to be good to us. And that's what the Bible says. It says that every good gift comes from God. And that word good 
because anything that would benefit us and help us. God is going to be good to us because he loves us. And of course, a good follow-up question would then be, well, if God is going to show me grace, if he is going to do good to me, then really what's the point of trying to just deny myself certain things if he's just going to bless me and be good to me anyways? It's a good question, right? And I think when people ask that with the right motives, it could be a very fair question. Because honestly, good things are just the tip of the iceberg as far as what God has for us. Good things, man, are just the tip. And we could just get so satisfied with just, oh, wow, this is great. Oh, man, we just have no idea. It's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole other life in Christ awaiting us with doors waiting to be opened, challenges waiting to be confronted, and maturity waiting to be made. This past week, I think I heard Jeremiah 29.11 three times this past week from different pastors from passages. I just I like to listen to uh, sermons throughout the week um, from all kinds of different people um, just to you know, help edify me and build me up. And a lot of times better than listening to the radio in the car. And, you know, it just helps. And I just, Jeremiah 29.11, man, just kept zooming me, zooming me all week long. I'm like, man. Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Plans to give you peace. For whatever reason, God felt like he really needed to give me that one this past week. And emphasize that one with me. Because good is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole plan set in place for Jared. There's Jared that can live sort of mediocre, Mediocre and kind of obedient. And then there's this whole other area. Completely sold out, Jared. Where Christ dominates every part, every corner. And that's going to go somewhere. Probably half that ride's going to freak me out and scare me. But I can almost guarantee you, if what in here is true, that life is completely unmatched to maybe the safe, comfortable, good life. Something, tip of the iceberg. So yes, God loves us. He's going to pour grace out on us. He's going to bless us. But there's that whole other life that we could enter into and live. And that's where I want to be. And hopefully that's where you want to be. See, sometimes we could think that after we've been good, then we're ready for God's grace. I think a lot of people a lot of times think like that. After I've been good, I can, you know, then I'm ready for God's grace. And so we're going to invite people to church and I, I know I have a lot of friends that are like, ah, I can't go to church yet. Got to clean it up first. You know, I got to stop doing this thing over here and I can't be doing that. I can't, I, like, I, can't, I know I can't do that stuff. Like, no, man, you just come. Like, you just, you just come. It's church is, you just come. It's not like all of a sudden you're all cleaned up. Like, we're all dirty in this thing together. This is a family, it's also a hospital. It's what it is. It's what church is. So a lot of us think, oh man, you know, I, once I clean myself up, you know, then I can get God's grace. No, you're getting God's grace whether you're super dirty or really clean. But the fact of the matter is you're always really dirty because that sin is always there. That's the battle that's always really going on. That's why it's so silly for us like to judge one another all the time. 
God wants to bless the pure in heart right now. That's the fact of the matter. That might be really hard for some people to understand. God wants to bless the pure in heart, the ones that are honestly seeking, trying to figure this thing out, looking after God, just trying to put it all together. I mean, there's the other side of people who are like, you know what, the only thing to do with it, or purposely uh, manipulate and um, have bad intentions, and God knows all about that. He's not really going to work with a whole lot of that. But for those that are pure in heart, that are really seeking with all that they got, he's looking to bless them right then and there. Because you've got to figure, these people on the hill, Jesus is, he's been doing ministry. He's been healing people. He's been helping people. And what happens? I mean, he's just on that mountainside just looking to take a break and hang out. And here they come, all the messed up people. And you got to think, you know, they are, uh, it's not a quiet scene. They're probably yelling and shouting. There's probably, probably people swearing over there. You know what I mean? There's probably people not dressed right. I mean, it's just not your perfect holy situation. And Jesus is just doing his Jesus thing. Kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. Laying them out however he's doing it. You know, who knows? There's no message. There's no music. There's not a guilt trip. Write me your check. You'll get your cloth. It's it's not going on. God wants to bless the pure in heart right now. I think we could definitely get into that mindset with those disciples. Could God really do that again for me? I used up a lot of that grace tank last time. I don't know how much I have left. No way, man. We can come with confidence before our God, before our King. Because He wants to bless us. He wants to. So are the disciples that dumb? I don't think so. I think maybe they just didn't totally understand God's grace. And I think maybe we can fall in that boat a little bit too. So that's question number one. Were the disciples that dumb? No. Just had to understand God's grace better. Question number two. Why does Jesus use what they have? Let's take a look. Verse 32. It says, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people if they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where can we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Jesus says... How many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. So my question is, question number two, why does Jesus even care what they have? Why is he even asking that question? To me, it seems silly. Because the fact of the matter is, Jesus, God, he just speaks things into being. He just says it and is done. He doesn't need anything. He could say, this was Jack and Sal up in the last men's breakfast. He was like amped about this. It was great to see it. It's very exciting and awesome to see people excited about just having God at the forefront of their mind and being blown away by him. Sal was amped up. Wish I had it recorded. So I'll do my imitation Sal. God can just speak things into existence. He could just say light, and it is there. He could say building, and it's there. He could say wood, and it's there. He could just speak it. 
That's the power that he possesses. And that's what he did. He just spoke the world into existence. When the Israelites were in the desert and they needed food, bless you, he just spoke it. And he just made manna just rain down. It just appeared. He just made it appear. So why is he even asking for a couple of bait fish and some small moldy pieces of bread? What is he even, what's the point? I would think he could make his point a lot better by just, boom, snapping his fingers and having a cheesecake factory right there. Like, why? Why wouldn't you just do that? It'd be amazing. And it'd probably taste a lot better. One part is believe, I believe, and I don't have the total answer, and I'm not going to act like I do. Because I don't think God really gives it to us. But I think he gives us some clues into some insights as far as why he does it. One part is because he wants us to share in these miracles, experience in these miracles, and most importantly, he wants us to think differently about him. He wants us to share in these miracles, like have some sort of vested interest in it a little bit, experience what's like going to happen. And most importantly, he wants us to think differently about him. What does God really care how I think about him? It's not going to affect him. He's still God. He could still do whatever he wants. A.W. Tozer has a good quote. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's what he says. He says our thoughts about God are actually very important. I don't think a lot of people would actually agree with that, especially non-Christians. I'd say, really, there's a whole lot of other things that are a lot more important about me than what I think about God. Well, the idea is what we know God, what we know about God is going to affect what we believe, and what we believe is going to affect our faith, and our faith is going to impact our life. That's really the way it's going to go. So why would God use imperfect people in his perfect plan? I mean, why? Honestly. Um, you know, if I, I always talk about sports and stuff and basketball, you know, if I own a sports team or a basketball team, like, I'm going to get the best players I can to produce at the highest level and be the most efficient and are the cheapest. That's what I would like to do, right? Um, when you own a company... You know, you want your PR rep, whoever that might be, put you in the best possible light at all times. Make some minimal mistakes, you can always count on them. Why would God use us, extremely imperfect, and he has a perfect plan? Why would he even involve us in this scenario? It just sounds very messy, very complicated, very inefficient. Why would he do that? Well, part of what I said before, he wants us to think about him differently. He wants us to believe him for more. He wants us to see what can be experienced and what is possible when we offer all that we have. If we have our have ourselves a little bit vested into what God is doing, it's going to strengthen our faith muscles. Because when we're faced with a seemingly impossible situation and God really puts into perspective how impossible it is, 
we know that's going to develop our faith. Absolutely. When we're put in that possible situation, there's nothing else left to do, we're going to realize real quick, wow, that really is impossible. And then if God, like Jesus did, says, hey, what are we going to do? You know, almost like a rhetorical question, putting it out there. They already know they can't feed them. And then when Jesus tells you, hey, what are you, Jesus tells you, what are you going to do about it? Uh, now I'm really stuck. Then we really realize we're in a pinch, we're in a bind. So all I could come up with was really two good, maybe somewhat sort of part answers to this. Why would God use imperfect people in his perfect plans? Part of the answer, God wants us to know how much we need him. He's got to have us really understanding and believing that. I don't know how many people actually understand and believe how much we actually need him each day. One of the things I posted on the church uh, Facebook page this week was that None of us in our own power can be the man or woman that God has called us to be. None of us. We can't do it in our own power. Cannot do it. He has this man, Jared, that he has. That he wants to live a certain way and accomplish certain things and go certain places. And be refined in certain areas. I can't do it in my own power. It's going to be foolish to try. In fact, it's going to wear myself out and probably I'll end up quitting. Because I'll be like, this is ridiculous. This is totally not worth it. I'm just stressed out and just, you know, I just can't do all of that. And that's the truth. I can't do all of that. And so the more I understand that, the more I realize, wow, I can't do this day successfully without his help. There's no way. There's no way I'm going to enter into those conversations. There's no way I'm just going to sort of make a helpful comment somewhere that God could maybe use. There's no way that I'm going to be able to bless my wife in the way that I have to unless I have his supernatural guidance. There's no way that you and I could be the man or woman that God has called us to be on our own. We can't do it. So I think that's part of the answer. He wants something from us so we can finally see, hey, listen, man, I don't have all the answers at all. I definitely need them. Part of the, part of the, the other part is that God wants others to see how he can work despite where we, may, where we may be lacking. God wants others to see how he can work despite where we may be lacking because other people are watching. So the first part of that answer was, you know what? He wants us to know how much we need him. The other part of that answer is, he wants others to see, because other people know us, and they say, Jared, he's doing what? Man, he can't do that. He was awful at that. Man, he could never do that stuff before. Where is that coming from? What? How is that happening? Because at the end of the day, we're not going to be like, hopefully, we're not going to say, well, you know, I've been practicing. I've been doing this. You know, I've been reading up on such and such and so and so has been teaching me certain things and I've done a really good job you know, studying and putting in the time that I need and maybe that, some of that might be true. Hopefully we seize that opportunity and we say, God has just given this you know, ability to me. He's honestly just given it to me. I've just been faithful and abiding and staying in Him and this is what's just happened. This is what's come out of it. 
then he's gonna do, he could do the same thing with you. Like, that's where the conversation needs to go. It's tempting to take a little bit for ourselves, though. But we want to just give God all the glory. So why does Jesus use what they have? Probably a lot of reasons. But at least a couple we talked about was that he wants them to know how much they're going to need him. He knows other people are watching. And at the end of the day, he wants us to think differently about him. We should be expecting more from God. Like there is no sort of, that's my limit right there. That's pretty much all that God can do. Things got to be wide open, just wide open. Sky's the limit. So here's the third question, last one. First question is, are the disciples that dumb? Second question was, why has Jesus used what they have? Third question is, why is compassion critical for a Christian? Why is compassion critical for a Christian? And that's with an assumption that we know compassion is critical. Maybe you don't know that. Let's take a look in our passage. It says, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion. Get that underlined and boxed. I have compassion for these people. This is the heart of Jesus right here, is compassion. Now let me say this too from the outset before we get too deep into this compassion talk, because many times you talk about Jesus, meek and mild and compassionate. He kind of seems like a softy. And he's kind of like this pushover. And that's sort of like what, you know, we should be as Christians, a sort of softy pushover, nicey-nicey type. For the most part, we should be loving and compassionate. But the other side, the other side of Jesus is this. The other side of Jesus is that he's a bad dude. If we can say dude respectfully, he's a bad dude. At the end, Jesus comes big tat right on his thigh right here when he's coming. It says, King of kings, Lord of lords. Only bad dudes do that. That's what he's got. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. This is a bad dude. He's got a robe dripped in blood. This guy does not play around. When it comes to sin, he's very serious. And that demands our respect. And it demands our reverence. But the other side of Jesus is that compassion to understand, man, these guys are in these fleshly bodies and they're struggling. I know their heart is with me, but I'm going to stick with them. That's the other part of Jesus. When we read through the Bible, when God was in human form, Jesus, this word compassion is huge. Three times. We've read so far up until this point. Matthew 9.36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus landed uh, and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And then in that Matthew 14 passage, that's when he fed the 5,000. was based out of the compassion. This word compassion comes up another three times, four times in the book of Matthew. Another five times in the book of Mark. Another four times in the book of Luke. Comes up again in John. 20 plus times, this word compassion. And almost every time out of this word compassion, it's a catalyst for miraculous move of God. Compassion at the center. And that word compassion 
in the original language, it, call, it means like this like yearning in the bowels. You know, it's just like, oh, like my heart is torn. You know, you're just, oh, man, I feel so bad for it. Like, ah, oh, man, you can't forget about it. I was watching this uh, basketball thing last night. It's like this special on us. ESPN does these specials, and I like to watch them. Uh, and it was on, a uh, specific one was on these kids in Senegal who um, are part of like this basketball sort of community. There's only like 15 of them. And it's like this, their story of how some of them get from Senegal to the U.S. and they, they finally make it here and they end up getting full scholarships and they try and get jobs, you know, and send money back home. And all these kids are going and this one kid couldn't get his visa and the cameras are all there, you know, filming everything. He runs into his room in Senegal because he couldn't get on the flight because he didn't have his visa and he slams the door and he's breaking down crying on the floor. It's like, oh, man, you know. Like some people, you know, would make fun of that, you know, and give the kid a hard time. And there's got to be some compassion there. Like the kid's dreams are shattered, you know, right before. That's a heavy pill to swallow. That's tough to take. And anybody that's ever taken a risk maybe toward their dreams and has been shattered, they can relate to that. But compassion for the Christian, right, it's a catalyst for us to move out and just go and do what God might have for us. And compassion is different than sympathy. I could feel bad for someone. I could see them feel bad and think, oh man, I feel so bad for them. And then they'll be out of my mind and I probably won't have an action to follow that up after. That's more like pity. I just feel really bad for you. Not that I like, want to help you or intervene in any way, but I do feel bad for you. Compassion is like, I feel so bad, I actually want to do something to help out about this. Because it has to be right. Like I have to pour into it somewhere. That's what Jesus was like. Because when we see people as Jesus sees them, we're never going to be the same when we interact with other people. Never going to be the same when we actually see them as he sees them. With that kind of compassion. We just look to them, to their hearts. And you know, you got to figure Jesus is perfect. He's looking at them and he's saying, man, they are just struggling, just battling right now. I know their heart is trying to stay with me, but they're just having a hard time carrying through. So three questions we talked about here. Says, are the disciples that dumb? Why does Jesus use what they have? Why is compassion critical for a Christian? I think those are all good questions from this passage, and we'll close with this. This thing up here is called a, uh, they call it a wordle, right? What you can do is you can uh, take a passage from a book, any book, um, and what you can do is you sort of type it into this thing, and, what gen- and this uh, sort of graphic generates out And it has all these words on there, and some of them are bigger, smaller, you know, horizontal, different color. And the idea with the bigger words are those are the words that are used more often. And so this is our passage this morning. You can see some of the words that stick out that are used, that that have emphasis to them. You know, giving, multitude, filling, seven, compassion, Fish, right? You can see these words. These are the ideas, the concepts that are in our passage this morning that we read about. So to close, hopefully we recognize that good things are happening when we hang around Jesus. All these Gentiles, they hang out with him three days. Three days. Good things did happen. John Corson says, hang out around the spout where the blessings pour out. This guy loves to rhyme. Guy loves to rhyme. He's good. 
said, hang out around the spout where the blessings pour out. I can't tell you uh, how many times just hanging around Jesus has benefited my life. Can't tell you. Sometimes that's just the greatest battle is just to sort of get into that area just to hang out around Jesus. Sometimes that's where the battle is. But there's so much value to that and it is so needed. Hang out around the spout where the blessings pour out. These people came hungry and hurting and they left healed, full, and worshiping. So what happens when we come to Jesus? They picked up seven basketfuls, like we said before. God provides more than enough for us physically and he fills us spiritually as well. I'll leave you with this last quote from D.L. Moody. It says, No matter how low down you are, no matter what your disposition has been, you may be low in your thoughts, words, and actions. You may be selfish. Your heart may be overflowing with corruption and wickedness, yet Jesus will have compassion on you. He will speak comforting words to you, not treat you coldly or spurn you, as perhaps those of the earth would, but will speak tender words and words of love and affection and kindness. Just come at once. He's a faithful friend, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. So what we're going to do is we're going to play that uh, last song, Hungry, one last time, because I just think that's so fitting, you know, to the passage, being hungry, you know, physically and spiritually. We'll play that song, and then I want to do some prayer time uh, together with the group of us.